worked our way uh, through here. Uh, theme, providential care for, God's, uh, for his people. God's providential care for his people. And then chapters 4 through 7, Esther's courage, Haman's plot backfires. Well, the story of Esther, above all, is a story about God's providential faithfulness to his people, really kind of in spite of themselves. It's a story about individuals, but beyond that, it's really about whole people groups, as, as we will see even in, in our study again tonight. Many of the Jews after the time of the Babylonian captivity remained in Persia instead of going back home to the the promised land. And in that context, we find the focus on two Jews, Mordecai and his beautiful cousin Esther. Uh, Mordecai found himself serving in the gate of the king and Esther became queen. Well, in the story, there was a man by the name of Haman, who by heritage was an Agite, This probably denotes him as being of the line of King Agag, who was king over the Amalekites uh, earlier in history. And these Amalekites were the perennial enemies of the Jews, and they were cursed by God. Well, Haman was made second in command in the kingdom, and the king ordered everyone to bow before him. Well, Mordecai refused to do so because he was a Jew, and this inflamed Haman. Consequently, Haman plotted how he might wipe out all the Jews in the kingdom. And he maneuvered himself in such a way that he got it signed into law by the king. And seemingly, the king didn't even really know what people group was being singled out for destruction. Well, Mordecai then pressed Esther to go in and see the king and make petition on behalf of her people, the Jews. Well, she did go in to see the king, and he held out his golden scepter, granting her an audience asking what what her petition was, and it would be granted up to the half of the kingdom. Well, she delayed and said, please come to a banquet uh, here in the afternoon or whatever on that day. And they did. Uh, Him and Haman, the king and Haman, were invited to the banquet. Well, at the banquet, uh, she invited both Haman and the king to yet another banquet on the next day. Now, Haman was really flying high, thinking he was really something special. I mean, he's the favored one. He's asked to join the king to go to the banquet. And then he's asked to go to yet another banquet on the next day. I mean, he's thinking, boy, I'm really somebody. I'm right there beside the king in all the banquets. Well, uh, between the first and the second banquet, he called his wife and friends together, and he bragged on himself, all his accomplishments, all that he has, his huge family, his promotions, and, and, and the favored position he has being invited with the king to these banquets. One problem. He says, all of this really means nothing to me because I got this problem, this one cloud over my life, and it just clouds over, over everything, and that's Mordecai the Jew. Couldn't stand Mordecai the Jew. Well, his wife and his friends suggested that he have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and then go in early in the morning and uh, request uh, of the king the Mordecai be hanged on these gallows. And then they said, go merrily to the banquet. That's the plan. Well, that brings us to chapter 6. Humanly speaking, everything seemed to be going Haman's way, and things looked very dire for the Jews, especially imminently for Mordecai. Well, the writer does not spell out why, humanly speaking, Esther... uh, asked for a delay in the form of requesting yet another banquet, that they attend yet another banquet. But whatever the reason, we see the providence of God behind it as brought out in chapter 6. Chapter 6 denotes the major turning point in the book. 
And uh, there's a guy by the name of J.G. Ballot, and he says this, the wonderful interweaving of circumstances which we get in this, in this history. There is plot and underplot, wheels within wheels, circumstances hanging upon circumstances, all formed together to work out the wonderful plans of God. That's a pretty good definition of providence. This is how God works. Commonly, we call this orchestrating of these circumstances, wheels within wheels, just the right time, just the right way, to just the right end as God's providence. Well, chapter 6 is right in the middle of these two banquets. That's when this takes place, right in between these banquets. And a lot can happen in the night. It's really about uh, a lot about the night between the two banquets and the morning, the night and then the morning before the second banquet. And a, a, a lot can happen, and it did. The whole course of history changed just like that. Well, let's pick it up. Chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Sleep. Just couldn't sleep. Ever have a night like that? Can't sleep? Um, no fun. You don't like those nights, do you? I mean, I don't like those nights. The king's having one of those nights. Couldn't sleep. What I call a case of providential insomnia, which really altered the course of history for the Jewish nation. Now, in Psalm 127, too, we read that God gives his beloved sleep. But I would say uh, he who gives sleep can also keep you from sleep. (laughs) And that was the case here. John Whitcomb says, God accomplishes some of his deepest work in the hearts of men as they lay awake upon their beds at night. I think that's probably true. The Persian kings, by the way, chronicled everything. We might compare these chronicles to the congressional record in our government, which would seemingly put anyone to sleep in about 10 minutes, right? Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, I do not mean to be unlovely, but to me the most boring thing in the world is to listen to minutes. Now, Kent, you don't want to listen to this since you take the minutes for the board. But J. Vernon McGee says, have you ever heard any minutes that were interesting? I never have. On the nights that the king could not sleep, he would say, bring in the minutes. (laughs) That's kind of what we got going here. Who wants to hear about the chronicles of these things? Okay, you wrote this down, you wrote this down. This happened on Thursday. This happened back here in March. Are you kidding me? That's what happened. Verse 2. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So Mordecai had informed Esther about these two guys who wanted to take out the king. And of course, Esther told the king, and these guys were dealt with. We read about these two eunuchs back in chapter 2 and how Mordecai had exposed them, and consequently they were hung. Now that event happened about five years previous. So, so we know they went back at least five years in the Chronicles, right? And so uh, <clears throat> we don't know. Was it, were they reading these things all night long? I mean, I don't know. But this event that they're talking about happened about five years previously. Now of all the text that could have been read going back through the years... In the providence of God, the one that contained the account of Mordecai saving the king's life was selected to be read that night. What amazing timing. Uh, Just a lucky coinkydink. Is that what it was? Just a lucky coinkydink? 
no, I don't think so. This has God's sovereign fingerprints written all over it. Verse 3. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing, nothing has been done for him. We don't have anything in the record that has been done for him whatsoever. Now, normally the king, and and this Persian king in particular, as far as the records that we have, was very quick to reward people, uh, especially those who performed heroics on his behalf. But for some reason, this got overlooked five years earlier. And now we know the reason why. God was saving it for such a time as this. Instead of Mordecai being honored five years earlier when this happened, right after that, we read in chapter 3, verse 1, we read of Haman's promotion. So instead of rewarding Mordecai for saving the king's life, Haman got promoted at that time above all of his peers. So again and again throughout this story, we see the unusual circumstances coming together that serve to preserve God's people, the Jews. Verse 4. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest, to suggest, just a friendly little morning suggestion, that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Now I often say providence has a lot to do with timing. The king had just been reminded of Mordecai's heroic deed and is looking first thing in the morning to reward him. On the other hand, first thing in the morning, here comes Haman to see the king about hanging Mordecai. Now, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, you might want to reconsider after reading this text. Uh, Believers Study Bible, I like this note says, there is certainly intentional humor in recounting that just as the king was planning to reward Mordecai, Haman was plotting to have him hanged. There's more humor when Haman discovers his mistake in assuming that he was the one to be honored, and then he must be the one to honor Mordecai. There's a lot of irony here. There's a lot of humor here in that sense. MacArthur says, the drama intensified as Haman arrived at just the wrong time and for just the wrong reason. <laughs> I find that humorous. Maybe you don't, but, but to me, there's kind of a, a little bit of a divine sense of humor coming through as it would seem to me. Verse 5, the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Wow, it's wonderful. Things just keep getting better for Haman, day in and day out. Boy, he's on a roll, he thinks. And this man, Haman, is, it seems like all he thinks about is himself. Uh, he's full of himself. And he's on a roll with bragging about all of his prosperity and everything that's gone his way. The day before, he's bragging about this with all of his wife and and his friends. His pride is really having its way with him at this point, and that never ends well. It's really, Haman is a clear illustration of Proverbs 16, 18. We know this verse. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That was certainly true in this case. Verse 7. And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, namely 
I'm pretty sure myself, is what he's thinking. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array that, the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now again, Haman is thinking that he's describing the honor that will be bestowed upon him. So he, he really lays it on thick, sparing no extravagance. Didn't need any money. I mean, the guy was already filthy rich beyond believability. So he asked for this, you know, this pride thing, to be honored in this, in this way. And it seems to me he didn't have to think too long about it. Evidently, he was already thinking some, uh, something along these lines. I mean, he answers immediately as though he'd already been thinking about this. To wear royal robes that the king had worn and ride on a horse that the king had ridden on was really kind of a little taste of royalty. It was like he was being treated as a king for the day. And, by the way, some have questioned this idea of, of this royal crest or the idea of a crown being placed on the head of a horse. But the Persian sculptures at that time depict this very thing as being practiced back here in this culture, indicating this was a, a horse that belonged to royalty. Verse 10, <clears throat> Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Again, tremendous irony. Humor. Can you imagine the shock that shivered through Haman's body at this moment? I mean, I, 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 I would pay pretty good money to just have a look at that. I'm pretty sure he had somewhat of a heart attack, at least a mini stroke. Something had to happen, I think. I'm just kidding on that, but I, I, I'm just sure he was flabbergasted beyond believability. This was the absolute last thing that he anticipated. I mean, after all, he's here to ask that Mordecai be strung up on the gallows. I mean, this is a... How could this possibly be? Well, when you manipulate things, it comes back on you. You reap what you sow. Certainly that is true here. The king was ignorant of the hostility between Haman and Mordecai and ignorant of the people group, namely the Jews that Haman, Haman's earlier decree was directed against, which of course included Mordecai. Apparently, though, uh, through the reading of the official records in the night, the king had discovered that Mordecai was a Jew, and therefore he highlighted this point. By the way, this is the first of five times that Mordecai is called a Jew to evidently highlight the point that although Haman had singled them out for destruction, it was totally backfiring. I want to have just a little footnote in terms of this idea of being a Jew and what's involved there. Note, note this. <clears throat> and this comes from uh, gotquestions.org, which is a great resource if you're just looking for this kind of information. But uh, the term Jew is a shortened form of the word Judah, which was the name of one of the tribes of Israel, uh, the tribe of David and of Jesus. Judah was also the name of the southern half of the kingdom of Israel when it split into two parts because it was dominated by the large tribe of Judah. The first time the word Jew is used in the Bible is during the exile in 2 Kings 25 and may have been a term coined by the Babylonians or Persians to refer to the people in their midst 
who had come from the kingdom of Judah. So Jew is really a kind of a form of, of Judah. By New Testament times, Jew is a common term, and it has remained in usage unto this day. A little bit more on this. Technically, no one was called a Jew before the exile. However, the people who became known as Jews were a distinct ethnic group by the time of Exodus 1. They were a distinct clan by the time of Jacob and his sons. Abraham was a Gentile. That is a member of one of the many nations that developed by this time, uh, by his time. The Jews came from Abraham because he was chosen by God from among the nations uh, to be the origin of a new nation. The Jews of Jesus' day looked to Abraham, not Jacob, Israel, as the head of their race. If one is thinking in these terms, it would not be wrong to think of Abraham as the first Jew, although that is technically not correct. So basically, the Jews are the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and then Jacob. And, you know, we tr- as we track the, the meaning of Jew, it kind of is related then to Judah, but represents, you know, all of these blood Jews back through uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Gentiles have often used the term Jew in a very derogatory manner. For example, a Jew nail is what? Maybe you've never heard that term. That's great if you haven't. But a Jew nail is a crooked nail, right? That's, that's what's called a Jew nail. Uh, to Jew someone or to Jew them down means to uh, cheat them or beat them out of something uh, in terms of what it's worth. Uh, and so we, we hear these kinds of things. But Esther highlights the term to emphasize that they are, in fact, God's chosen people. And uh, his preservation of them proves it. It proves his covenant promises are true. And his providence ensures that they will yet be fulfilled. Well, here's what happened. Verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. What an amazing turn of events. Uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary says, What a turn of events, what irony for Haman. Mordecai, whom he hated, had to be honored by Haman. He who wanted respect from Mordecai had to give respect to Mordecai. Haman had to carry out the king's order, even though it embarrassed and angered him greatly. Uh, You talk about carrying out a job with no heart for it. Uh, This had to be it. Again, the irony here is rich. Uh, Here is Haman having to announce publicly before all in the the capital, on the main square there, that Mordecai is the honored one by the king. Can you imagine the fellow peers, by the way, of Haman with muffled laughs and thinking, oh my goodness, look what's (laughs) happening here. They knew Haman hated Mordecai. And here he is making, you know, having to blast this out as he's going along, leading him on, the, uh, in the, on this horse, the royal horse in the royal attire and saying, look at this one, the one whom the king is honoring. <laughs> oh my goodness. Verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. Little interesting side note here as if to highlight the difference between Mordecai and Haman. After being honored and exalted like he was, you might think that Mordecai would maybe bask in it for a while, might be tempted to gloat just a little bit, but no, no mention of this. Uh, He went right back to work in the king's gate. Hadn't lost his position at all. And I sense in this whole narrative that, that God is at work not only on behalf of his people, the Jews, but I think he was also at work personally in the heart and life of Mordecai and Esther. Uh, 
Earlier, Mordecai was, was of a different spirit where he absolutely did not want it to be out, to be known that he was a Jew. And uh, we see that uh, earlier. But once it came out, as we go along in the story, there, there's, a different, uh, there's a different spirit of things. As things progressed, he seemed to recognize the gravity of being in a position to help the people of God. And he appeals to Esther on that in that way. And that God would sovereignly preserve them as a people, no matter what. And as things got real dire, we see him fasting, being in sackcloth over his concern for his people, and, and then for Esther as well. Now we see him just quietly going back to his position in the king's gate. There's no airs of self-promotion, uh, like was so obvious with Haman. So I think we have a contrast being drawn there. Well, Mordecai resumed his position at the king's gate while Haman hurried uh, home in tears with his head buried in shame. Now, I wonder about how this went down. You know, this is a real story. It's a real historical story. And do you think as the horse was being led back to the stable, uh, do you think they had a little chat? I doubt it. Uh, You wonder if Mordecai, you know, we all still have the flesh, but I wonder if he was kind of tempted with a twinkle in his eye to say, it's been fun. See you after the banquet. (laughs) There's no record of this, none at all. But I wonder how it went down. You know, it had to be extremely awkward. I mean, uh, Haman absolutely hated Mordecai. And you know what? I don't think Mordecai was very fond of Haman either, as we have noted. Uh, I think there's a little bit of ego and pride in in both back there. But it had to be strange, had to be awkward. Uh, Note that Mordecai had publicly grieved over the fate of his people after the decree was signed and called for the extermination of the Jews, as we saw back in chapter 4. But now Haman privately grieves over his own humiliation. The Bible speaks of worldly sorrow in contrast to godly sorrow. And if you want an example of worldly sorrow, it's Haman. You know what worldly sorrow is all about? It's not about... uh, Uh, I'm concerned that I've sinned against God and that I've hurt people and all of that. No, worldly sorrow is all about self. It feels sorry for self because of self and because of what self is now having to go through. It's self-oriented. That's worldly sorrow. Poor pitiful me. It's all about me. And Haman was in in that camp. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is god oriented uh, I have sinned against God, and it's in keeping with true repentance. Well, Haman was all about worldly sorrow. Verse 13. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, listen to what they said, quote, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. What an interesting statement made by these pagans. It's almost like it was prophetic. Uh, This culture, by the way, tended to be very much into omens and mysticism, reading signs into everything that's kind of happening. And they evidently saw this this as a turn of events as a bad omen. But it's most interesting that they connect it with the Jewish Jewish heritage of Mordecai saying it was because of this that Haman would fall before him. If, it's, if, if he is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail, they say to him. 
It's almost like they were Bible students who knew the truth of Genesis 12.3, right? Genesis 12.3, I will bless those who bless you, God said to Abraham. And I will curse him who curses you. You just can't get away with cursing the Jews. And it seems like this providential turn of events was so obvious that even the close family and friends of Haman realized this at this point. We're not exactly sure what they meant or what their reasoning was, but on the face of it, it plainly seems to indicate the Jewishness of Mordecai will be the downfall of Haman. I mean, that's plainly what they're saying. John MacArthur says, Haman's entourage seemed to have some knowledge of biblical history. I think we get a a little feel for this all along. Uh, This was not merely about Haman and Mordecai, but about a bigger picture involving two people groups represented in history. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of bad blood between these two people groups they represent. I think Haman knew it, as evidenced by his wife and friends right here. And I think Mordecai knew it, as seen in his reaction towards Haman earlier in the narrative. Recall that there is a lot of Bible prophecy regarding the ultimate fall of the Amalekite people, of which Haman was representative. Uh, Let me just uh, refresh your memory just a little bit here. Exodus 17, for he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. <clears throat> Numbers 2420. Uh, this is, of course, Balaam, the, the, the wicked prophet, false prophet, but God overrode in many ways. Then he looked on Amalek and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. Boy, that's quite a, that's quite a curse pronounced on them. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear. I mean, that's really low. When you were tired and weary and did not fear God, therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget... So God's saying, I'm going to have an assignment for you in the future where I want you to wipe out these Amalekites. Well, guess who got that assignment? It was the first king of Israel. That assignment fell to him. And uh, here's what happened. First Samuel 15, 1 through 4. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant, nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And guess what Saul did? He didn't do it. He didn't do it. Spared the king, the best of the animals, etc. He failed miserably in this mission. And you know what happened because of this? The kingdom was stripped from him, as we find later in 1 Samuel 15. All this to say, there's a lot of background history regarding Haman's people, the Amalekites, and the Jews. This was bigger than just these two men. Well, verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. It's now time for the second banquet. Just that quick, it was time. You know what? Haman didn't really have even time to process this. The plot thickens, the pace quickens. This is the third time in the chapter when things 
after things started to go south for Haman that we have the mention of him being rushed or hurried along. Previously, he was in charge. At least he thought so. Now he's caught up in the rapid events of the moment. It's like Haman is caught in the cogs of of God's mighty auger of judgment and he is being pulled irresistibly to the place of execution. And there is no escape. And you know what? That's a terrible place to be. This is one of the great chapters in the Bible on the providence of God. In the end, God always has his sovereign way. No one can beat God. And woe be to the person who dares to mess with God's chosen people. Many have played this role uh, of folly, inevitably have ended up just like Haman with personal disaster. William Kuyper made this famous statement, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. And that is certainly true when it comes to the people of Israel and the land of Israel. I've quoted this before. It's worth quoting. It's a great statement. Uh, James Russell Lowell wrote this in the 1800s. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown... Standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. This is the providential care of God. Standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Well, we're kind of in the middle of the story. We won't finish it next week because we're not going to have an evening service. But the week after that, Lord willing, we providentially will get to it. Let's, uh, let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close in prayer this evening.